0: That is the perfect, perfect song to lead into the opening of the Scriptures and the preaching of the Word. And I hope that's your prayer today as we come to the time of opening the Scriptures and asking God to speak. Speak, O Lord, words of power that will never fail. Speak, O Lord, until your truth prevails and until the earth is filled with your glory. I hope that's your prayer today and the hunger that you bring to God's Word. Well, let's open up the Scriptures now. Turn to our passage for our sermon this morning. We're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, and we're going to look together specifically at verses 27 through 30. This is the opening section of the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. And to give a little bit of context, I'm going to back up and I'm going to begin reading at verse 17. So I'm going to ask you will please stand for the reading of Holy Scripture. This is the Word of God for us, His people, and these are the words of our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Jesus says, Verse 17, "'Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished.' Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, That everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is God's holy word for us as people, and these are the words of Christ our Lord. Father, we ask that you would come now and bless the reading and preaching of your word. We ask, speak, O Lord, show us the truth you have for us today, write it deep upon our hearts, and may we leave here conformed more into the image of Christ than when we came. For your glory and for our good, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, we were in the Gospel of Matthew, and we looked at chapter 21, the parable of the two sons. And the first son is asked to go into the vineyard. He says, no. But then later he changes his mind and he goes. Second son is asked by his father, go into the vineyard. serve." he says, yes, sir, absolutely right away. And then never ends up going. And the point last week was, we've just finished this series on the one another's. And now we come to, what do we do with it? What kind of disciple is Jesus looking for? And we saw there are two kinds of responses. There's the ones who initially say no, but then later they repent. They believe the gospel and they go and they serve. And then then there are those who say yes to God, but never get around to being obedient. They've prayed the prayer. They've done that thing they're supposed to do to be saved, but there's nothing under it. It's just something they did a long time ago and it's made no difference in their life. They're not in the vineyard. They're not doing the will of the Father. They're not serving. And so last week we talked about the evidence that we have believed the gospel is that we're laboring in the vineyard. And these one another's is what that labor looks like. And the results of us doing these one another's is the fruit that we get from laboring in the vineyard. Fruits of the kingdom, Jesus calls them. And so we're told, don't be self-righteous just because we say yes to one another. Those sound great. As long as I say yes to them, I don't have to actually get around to ever doing them. And so we said, be careful. Check yourself to see if you're in the vineyard. Now this week, I want to guard against another temptation that we have with obedience. As though obedience is just Gritting your teeth and getting in the vineyard and doing what, the, doing what he says and just conforming to the letter of the law without actually having God's word get down inside of us. Just being obedient outwardly but having a heart that is internally still rebellious. That's what we're getting at in this sermon today. And I picked a section of the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus is illustrating the kind of righteousness He expects of His followers. And He's doing it by contrasting it with the wrong kind of righteousness, the kind that He rejects. And I could have picked any of these. I just happened to pick verses 27 through 30 because I think it highlights the point very well. It's Jesus' teaching on lust in relation to the seventh commandment, which is, you shall not commit adultery. So this is where we're going this morning. I was once listening to a Jewish scholar explaining some of the differences between Judaism today and Christianity. And he had several things to say, but one of the differences that he mentioned was this. He said, Judaism, as a religion is primarily concerned with your behavior. Whereas Christianity is primarily concerned with the heart. Behavior is crucially important for Christians, but the main issue is the heart. Not so Judaism. It's about keeping the law, doing what it says. And if your heart is in it, that's great. If it's not, you still got to keep the letter of the law. And when you've done that, you've done enough. You've done all the law requires. Christianity, though, goes after the heart that was what he said and i think that assessment's exactly right and i think that that key difference between rabbinic judaism and christianity goes all the way back to the first century when the gospel of matthew was written matthew was written at a time when judaism and christianity were beginning to diverge from one another the faction of the pharisees was becoming the dominant orthodox perspective in the late 1st century and the pharisaic rabbis were establishing themselves as the teachers of Israel once the pharisees achieved complete dominance rabbinic judaism was born but in those early days in the 1st century Jews and Jewish Christians like Matthew and his community they were in sharp conflict and debate with the pharisees over the proper interpretation of God's law, how to practice it and how to apply it. So Matthew draws heavily when he writes his gospel, he draws heavily on the traditions of Jesus' encounters with the Pharisees in order to present the Christian perspective on the law. And this is why Jesus' main opponents in the gospel of Matthew are the scribes and Pharisees. Scribes and Pharisees show up way more in Matthew than they do in the other Gospels, and that's because of who Matthew's dealing with in his own day when he's writing his Gospel. So naturally, he's drawing on the things about the story of Jesus that speak to his time and context and to help his community. The Christian view is repeatedly contrasted in Matthew with the Pharisaic view, as Jesus argues with the Pharisees. But it's in the Sermon on the Mount where Matthew gives us the fullest and clearest explanation of the key difference between Judaism and Christianity when it comes to God's law, and it's this. For Judaism, it's all about externals. Behavior is primary, keeping the outward commands to the letter. But for Christianity, it's all about the heart. Behavior that keeps the letter of the law because it flows from a heart that keeps the spirit of the law. Remember, the thesis statement of the whole Sermon on the Mount is what we read earlier in Matthew 5 20. This is Jesus' main point for the whole Sermon on the Mount. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You need a righteousness that exceeds, goes beyond, is better than, greater than the righteousness of scribes and Pharisees. As Jesus goes on to explain at length, Christian righteousness exceeds Pharisaic righteousness because it goes deeper than deeds. It goes below the surface level of behavior and touches the heart. It stretches beyond outward observance of the law and demands a heart that keeps the law. Christian righteousness does not merely say do these kinds of things. Rather, Christian righteousness says be this kind of person who does these things. The righteousness that Jesus teaches demands inner transformation. Law keeping all the way down that changes both the unrighteous and and the self-righteous into true saints with holy hearts. In our passage this morning, we see how Jesus makes this point using the seventh of the Ten Commandments. He contrasts how Pharisees keep this law and how Christians must keep it. And as we examine this passage, we learn three things about the seventh commandment. And I'll phrase these three as questions. Number one, how is the law broken? Two, what does keeping the law require? And then third, what's at stake in this law? And from these three points, we're going to learn three lessons about Christian righteousness as it relates specifically to marriage because the seventh commandment after all is about marriage you shall not commit adultery so let's begin with the first question how is this law you shall not commit adultery how is this law broken Notice, Jesus sets up a contrast between the Pharisee's interpretation and his own by quoting the seventh commandment and framing it with his characteristic words, you have heard that it was said, dot, 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 but I say to you. That's why I backed up and read some context. In verse 21, he's talking about anger and he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you dot, dot, dot. He does this multiple times here in chapter 5 of Matthew. This is the way he's drawing out the contrast. Here's a Pharisee's way of keeping the law. Here's my way of keeping the law. And the implicit criticism that becomes clear in verse 28 is that the Pharisees think that the commandment simply means do not act with a person who isn't your spouse as though they were your spouse. Do not act with a person who isn't your spouse as though they were your spouse. As long as you keep your hands to yourself and your boots under your own bed, you are not in danger of breaking this law. You have done all that the law requires. We might paraphrase their interpretation as, you can look, but don't touch. Jesus rejects that interpretation. If that's your interpretation of the law, Jesus rejects it. It's fine if you look. Do all the looking you want. Doesn't, that doesn't hurt anybody. Just as long as you don't touch. Jesus rejects that reading of the law. Jesus teaches us that breaking this law, committing adultery against your spouse, involves not just your hands, but also your eyes. Not just your body, but also your heart. Look at verses 27 and 28. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now in these two verses, I want to notice two things that Jesus does. Two crucial connections that Jesus makes. Number one, he connects the looking eye with the intentions of the heart. Man, this is important. He connects the looking eye with the intentions of the heart. When I was in high school, I went through such a long period of struggling with this passage about looking. When I was in high school, I had the uh, the impression that I can't go I can't watch TV. I can't go to the mall. I can't go to gym class. I can't I can't go outside for fear that I'm going to see something and want to look. And I was plagued with this sense of guilt that if you even just take a side glance at somebody, boom, you're sinning. And God's ready to smash you. But God, that's not what Jesus said. That's not what he says. When he says looking, he does not mean if you just you see somebody out of the corner of your eye and then you kind of glance over, or or you you're in you're in public somewhere and you see somebody that's attractive and then you kind of do this double take. Like that's I thought that was like boom, you're going to hell. Not a very good view of the gospel. But I had this overwhelming, crushing guilt about that. And Jesus is not saying that a little glance and doing a little double take, it's almost like you didn't even, it's almost involuntary. You do a little double take or innocently acknowledging that you find someone else attractive, but nothing's happening in the heart. Any such feeling or looking that merely admires a person's looks without involving any connection at all with what's happening in your heart, that's not what Jesus is condemning. If you see someone and you just innocently say, oh, that person's attractive, good for them. Oh, that person's attractive, okay, nice. And then just go about your business and nothing's happening on the inside, there's nothing... Sinful, there's nothing lustful, there's nothing inappropriate happening inside. You just see and acknowledge that's an attractive person. What are you going to do? <laughs> that's not what Jesus is condemning. He makes this important connection. He connects the eye with the heart. Now, those things, looking, glancing, things like that, those, can't, those have the potential to become sinful, don't get me wrong. But they're not necessarily sinful all by themselves. It is possible to look at someone without lusting after that person. And if you don't think that's possible, then we all need to just shut our eyes. And you're going to be condemned with guilt the way I was all through high school. It is not simply the eye that looks that breaks the law. It is the lustful eye that breaks the commandment. The main issue is the lusting not simply the looking. Now, Jesus makes a second crucial connection in this passage. Here's the second one he makes. He connects the seventh commandment to the tenth commandment. Jesus uses the tenth commandment to define the lust that breaks the seventh commandment. Now, what's the tenth commandment? I bet if I asked you to quote it, most likely you would respond, you shall not covet. And that would be not quite right. It's not that it's wrong, it's just that it's incomplete. It doesn't say, you shall not covet, period. The Tenth Commandment gives examples of the things that you shall not covet. And in Deuteronomy... Chapter 5, verse 21, the first example is you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Listen to the whole commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field or his male servant or his female servant, his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now in the Greek Old Testament, the Old Testament written in Hebrew, but it was translated into Greek. And in the Greek Old Testament, the word for covet that I just read is the very same Greek word in Matthew 5:28 that's translated lustful intent in the ESV. And the same word for wife back in Deuteronomy is translated in Matthew 5 as woman. Jesus is using the vocabulary of Deuteronomy 5.21, that 10th commandment, and he's applying it to the 7th commandment. Coveting is what Jesus is talking about. Not just looking, coveting is what he's talking about. Jesus is saying, whoever looks at a woman with an eye to possess her, to have her, whoever welcomes into his heart the longings, yearnings, and cravings that would intentionally violate the commandment if you could, if given the opportunity. If you have done that, you have already exchanged your spouse for someone else in your heart. A covetous heart is an adulterous heart. And that person is guilty before the law of God for violating the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. So here we have the answer to our first point. How is the law broken? Answer, adultery, the sin of infidelity to a spouse is committed by the heart that covets someone else just as surely as the body that lies with someone else. Breaking the law involves and includes the heart as well as the body, the eyes as well as the hands. This brings us then to the second point that we learn from this passage. We've just seen... How is this law broken? And now the second point. What does the law require? If that's how you break the law, with your heart, not just your hands, what does it mean to keep the law? What's required to keep it? And Jesus tells us the answer in the first part of verse 29 and the first part of verse 30. First part of 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out. And throw it away. First part of verse 30. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Jesus uses a graphic, hyperbolic metaphor here. What he means is not literally lop off hands and tear out eyes, thank goodness. Now, he uses this metaphor to mean. Put to death the sins committed with the eyes and the hands. The lustful look and the outward action. Put those things to death is what he means. And this metaphor tells us a couple of things that Jesus wants us to know about how we keep this law. First, Jesus wants us to take this sin seriously. You do not use a graphic metaphor about chopping off body parts and gouging out eyeballs if you're just talking about something that's light and not a big deal. Minimally important. Take it or leave it. doesn't really matter. No, he uses a metaphor like that because Jesus wants us to be deadly serious about this commandment and this sin. If something in you is causing you To break this commandment, either externally or in the heart, he means go to war on whatever that is. Go to war. Go to the extreme measures. And that's the second thing he wants us to know. Not just take it seriously, but this. Battling this sin is a fight to the death to tame your flesh. All of us have those parts of us that have not yet fully yielded to the lordship and mastery of Jesus Christ. And we still resist and we still say no like the first son in last week's parable. And we still rebel and we still will not yield and will not obey. And Jesus says, battling this sin is a fight to the death to tame that old flesh that just doesn't want to say yes to the Lord. We are sons and daughters of Adam. And that old man, that old Adam still clings to us. Eve still holds on to you. And what we have to do is to put the old Adam, the old Eve to death. To put that old self to death over and over until it's vanquished. And let the new self, created in the image of Christ, control and guide us. We need to fight to the death on this sin. And Jesus is saying on this one, do not just simply take out a dull butter knife and rub it on your wrist. And just scratch your wrist. He says, no, take out out the sword and hack off the sin. Don't just scratch around the outside of the lustful eye, but begin to dig and to pluck. Put to death that old sin that will not yield to the Lordship of Christ. Why use a metaphor like that? He wants us to take the sin with complete seriousness. He wants to take obedience with complete seriousness. And he wants us to know that the fight to obey Jesus, the fight of sanctification, is a battle to the death with your flesh. What is required to keep this law? Take the law seriously and get busy going to war on your sin. Now, the final point to learn from the passage this morning answers our last question. What's at stake in the seventh commandment? Why use this metaphor? Why... why, Tell us it's so serious. What's the point of this, Jesus? That's a graphic metaphor. What's the point? What's at stake? Why should we take this law so seriously? Why must we fight this sin so fiercely? Well, just imagine with me for a second. Imagine that you're a first century Jew and you're there on the hillside listening to Jesus give this sermon for the first time. You're there in person for the Sermon on the Mount and you're hearing these things. Just imagine, the thought that a lustful heart is a violation of the law against adultery would have been absolutely terrifying for you. Why? Well, because the law says in Leviticus 20 verse 10 and in Deuteronomy 22:22. That the penalty for adultery under the law of Moses is death by stoning. (laughs) Okay, you know that. You're a good Jew. You know what the penalty is for adultery. It's death by stoning. Pummeled with rocks by the community until you are a bloody pulp and are dead. And Jesus has just told you that every lustful intention in your heart is adultery? That means, logically, that I deserve to be hit with a rock for every lustful thought I've ever had. Because if that's adultery, and it breaks the law, and the penalty's death, it would have condemned you, me, and everybody. We would have been absolutely without hope on that hillside. It would have been devastating to hear Jesus say this. It's not like he's lowering the bar. He has just completely raised the stakes by saying... That the law doesn't just mean don't go do things you shouldn't do with other people. He means have the right heart that the commandment requires. Oh, it would have condemned all of us. But Jesus in this passage goes further than that, doesn't he? Look at verses 29 and 30 again. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Why? For because it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus teaches that the adulterous heart deserves not just some human punishment, but that the lustful, adulterous heart deserves the divine death penalty. What is at stake in this law? Why take it so seriously? Why fight so hard on this one? Because heaven and hell are on the line. That's why. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. So, we must gouge out the eye that will not yield to Christ. We must cut off the hand that clenches the fist in defiance against Christ. Jesus says it's better to be half in heaven than whole in hell. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. As we conclude this morning, from these three points we've seen, I want to draw three lessons that we can take away From this text. And then at the end I want to offer a word of hope and encouragement. Because frankly we haven't had much of that yet. (laughs) This is not one of those passages where you go to, to feel comfortable and feel good about yourself. This is one of those hard passages from Jesus. That demands all of you. Externally and internally. It requires all of you. So we'll conclude with a word of hope and encouragement. But first, let's draw these three brief lessons from what we've seen so far. Remember this. The main point this morning is this. Christian righteousness is the kind of obedience or law-keeping that Jesus demands of us, his followers. And in the context of marriage, we have seen that Christian righteousness goes much deeper than deeds It's not simply what we do on the outside, just keeping the letter of the law, but it goes all the way down to the heart. Jesus demands our hearts as well as our bodies. Now here are the three lessons. First, you cannot be faithful to your spouse if your heart strays after someone else. This is a sobering reminder To all of us who are married, you cannot be fully, completely, totally faithful to your spouse if your heart is straying after someone else. You've already made the exchange in here. And sadly, for some people, the only reason you have been faithful to your spouse is because no one else is offering That's a damning indictment. Some people are faithful just because no one else will give them a chance to be unfaithful. And that's not obedience. Outwardly, yeah, you're not breaking the law, but on the inside you've broken the law countless times. Jesus reminds us that He doesn't just want us to do certain things that conform to the letter. He wants us to be deep down inside the kinds of people who don't break the law, but who do keep the law. And the promise of the gospel is that when we're born again, he writes his law in our hearts so that we do keep it from the inside out. We keep it all the way down. That's the first lesson we learn. Second lesson is this. Lesson number two, you and I, we must guard our hearts ferociously. Guard your heart ferociously. And one way you can do that, there are many ways, but let me just give you one example of how you can guard your heart. Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11, tell us, it asks this question, how can a young man keep his way pure? We could fill in anybody. How can a young woman, how can an older man, how can an older woman, how can any of us keep our hearts pure? And it says, By putting the Word of God down in our hearts. Treasuring up God's Word in our hearts so that we will not sin against the Lord. This Word of God is powerful. And if you will start getting this Word down inside and let its life-changing truth just wash over your soul, you will be changed to be more like the God who gave you this book more like the Jesus that you see and love in this book. Open up your heart to the Word and allow it to do its heart-changing, life-changing work, purifying and cleansing and renewing and restoring and transforming us in our mind, and our heart, and our will, in our lives. Get into this Word and you will not recognize yourself in due time. God's Word is powerful and effective. Speak, O Lord. You have the words of eternal life. Guard your heart ferociously by putting the Word deep in your heart. And the last lesson to learn this morning is this. Marriage is on the brink of eternity. Being married puts you on the cusp of eternity eternity it will either be a gateway into heaven or it will be a trapdoor into hell because marriage is a big deal it's a supremely big deal jesus talks severely in this passage about breaking the commandment about faithfulness to a spouse heaven and hell are on the line marriage is a risky venture Full of reward, but full of dangers lurking around the corner. It will either be your gateway into heaven, or it will be your trapdoor into hell. And now, the word of hope. Let me give you this piece of advice about reading the Gospels. Always read the law of Christ in light of the Gospel of Christ. Always read the middle of the book in light of the ending. Because at the end of the book, Jesus goes to a cross and he dies for you and me who have shattered the seventh commandment and all the other ones too. He goes to that cross at the end to bear our law breaking and to bear the curse and penalty of our law breaking upon himself so that we can go free. Jesus calls us to a perfect standard to strive after a holiness that no mortal can ever attain. But that same Jesus went to the cross and He rose again to save us from breaking the commandments. And He gave us a perfect righteousness to stand before God So we strive for obedience exactly the way Jesus said. We strive for obedience, but we do it as justified, forgiven sinners who will inherit the kingdom by grace. So be faithful, Christian. Be faithful to your spouse. And battle your flesh. But don't do it to earn heaven. Because heaven is already yours. By grace alone, through faith alone, based on nothing but Christ and the gospel. It's your inheritance. Laboring in the vineyard from last week doesn't save you. It doesn't even earn you any brownie points. It's simply the response of a heart full of gratitude for the unconditional love, grace, grace, And mercy of God upon our sin. So be faithful to your spouse. And battle your flesh. Not to earn heaven. Not to earn anything from God. But simply out of gratitude. Be faithful. Cut off the hand. Gouge out the eye. Take it seriously. Go to war. Do everything Jesus says to do. Be faithful. Tame your flesh. But do it out of gratitude to God's mercy and out of a selfless love and service to your spouse. This is the marriage that Christian righteousness requires, and it is nothing less than the entrance into the kingdom of heaven and the gateway into paradise. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your mighty word. Thank you for speaking to us today. Thank you for the teachings of Jesus. Thank you that he doesn't pull his punches with us, that he shoots straight with us. He tells us what he expects. He sets the standard high. He calls us to a radical obedience, to full discipleship, to be new people, new creatures who walk on the narrow way. But thank you, Lord, that you didn't just simply confront us with expectations and give us no grace. Thank you, Lord, that you have promised us in the gospel all the grace and all the resources we need through the Holy Spirit who is within us to begin to walk in new obedience, to see the changes that your word makes in our lives. Thank you that you have changed us, that you are changing us, that you will keep changing us, that you have been faithful, your mercy covers all of our sins, and it will continue to do so. I pray that you help us to see the crucial difference between a Pharisee's righteousness and the righteousness you require. To not simply be content with giving the right answer and trying to conform externally To what you say. But leaving our heart out of the equation. Keeping our heart to ourselves. Chasing after idols. Lord I pray that you would convict our hearts. That you would make us the kind of people. Who obey you from the inside out. And may we never. Put our trust in our obedience to save us. Or to earn anything from your hand. But may our obedience. Walk that razor's edge of trusting in the gospel and then serving you and our neighbor out of nothing but love and gratitude and joy. Teach us how to walk that way. Make us into the kind of disciples Jesus calls us to be. Do it for your glory. And we'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.